After the king was settled in his palace, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in a palace of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. That night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of, the, out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with the tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture and from following the flock to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men of the earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them any more, as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, and you will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod of men, with floggings inflicted by men. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. This is the word of the Lord. For the past several months, we've been looking at the life of David. David uh, was a king. He was a man after God's own heart, pointing to Christ, the ultimate king. It's one of the reasons why we're looking at him during this Christmas Advent season. But because he points to true kingliness, we learn about the things, if you have them, it's going to make your life. And the things, if you don't have them, it's going to break your life. This passage is incredibly interesting, very interesting. Um, at the top of the chapter, we read, Now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all the surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And... and <clears throat> And Nathan said to the king, go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Now, what's going on here? David, he's getting rest from his surrounding enemies. And what that means is he's beginning, he's beginning to experience military success. The political environment, the climate around his country is starting to soften. It's starting to stabilize. The economy is starting to stabilize. The civil uh, issues are finally starting to flatten out. And now he's got this great palace, this great house with cedar panels, and that makes it incredibly beautiful, incredibly fragrant, and incredibly expensive. 
And he says to Nathan the prophet, it's not right that I'm living here in this house while the Lord is living this tent that's been around for hundreds of years and probably moldy. And so David says, I want to build God a house. I want to build a temple. But in verses 4 to 5, God comes to Nathan, and through Nathan, he tells David, no, I don't want you to build me a house. Now, why? And there are three reasons why. The first is is because God is an empathic king. The second is he is a gracious king. And lastly, because he's the eternal king. He's an empathic king, a gracious king, and the eternal king. And we're going to talk about some applications that come from that. First, he's the empathic king. In verses 6 to 7, God asks David, in all the years that your people, that my people were in the wilderness, in all the years that they've been wandering around in the desert, have I ever asked for a temple? Have I ever asked for a house? No. And why? Because I actually live with my people. What my people experience, I experience. If my people are wandering, then I wander. If my people are suffering, then I suffer. So if my people still do not experience true prosperity and peace and security, then I don't have true prosperity and peace and security. See, David had begun to establish peace and prosperity and security all through his land. And just like most first or all first world countries, not everybody gets to experience that in full. And God is saying, I don't want to live like a king when, when my people still have needs. I want to dwell with them. And so Christmas is about this coming of the empathic king who suffers because his people suffer, who dwells with them. That's the first point. Now the second point is he's a gracious king. In verse 8, he reminds, God reminds David, I took you from the pasture. I took you from the sheep, that you should be prince over my people. In other words, David, you used to just lead sheep, but now you lead a nation. And why? It's because of me. You can't do anything for me. You can only do things through me. It's all by sheer grace. Your success, your security, it's all by grace. And that's incredibly remarkable. Why? Because every other religion, every other God, works on the principle, you build me a house, and I will bless you. You do something for God, and God will bless you. The blessing is conditional, but not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible says, I'm a God of sheer grace. Sheer grace alone, I will build you a house. His blessing is unconditional, only by grace, only by his love. Now, a lot of people say, well, I don't really believe in in other gods. I don't really believe in other religions. Yes, you do. Think about this. That thing which occupies all your thoughts, the sum of your anxieties, that thing which makes up the sum of your happiness, that thing which which, uh, consumes the sum of your labors, your soul, that thing is your God. If that God is threatened, you become anxious. If that God is blocked, you become angry. If that God is lost, then you fall into despair. So if you're putting all of your thoughts and all of your happiness and all of your labor and all of your soul into making money, then you need to build that house. You're going to be working to build it. And if you do, maybe that God will bless you. And if you fail, there's going to be anxiety and bitterness and fatigue. 
If you're putting all your thoughts and happiness and labor and your soul into your family, you're just pouring into your family, you still need to build that. If you're successful, maybe you'll be content. Maybe. But if you fail or if your children are damaged or if your children fail, you're going to feel cheated and you're going to feel bitterness and confusion and fatigue. You stop. Are you tired? Aren't you tired? What occupies the sum of your time? What occupies the sum of your thoughts, the sum of your anxieties? That thing is your God. Christmas is about rest. You know, the angels, if you look at any of the nativity passages in Scripture, the angels, they come to the shepherds at the birth of Christ. They come to these nearby shepherds, and what do they say? They don't say, now prosperity on earth. They don't say that. They don't say, now there'll be perfect families on earth. They don't say, now, good health to all. That's not what they say. They don't say, oh, success now on earth. They say, peace. Peace on earth. We can rest. Christmas gives us a whole new way of viewing God, a whole new way of approaching God. And as a result, it gives us a whole new way of interpreting success and failure. You don't need to make work the thing that defines your or, or earns you a sense of worth anymore. God's love, his blessings, it's all unconditional, all by grace. You can rest in him. You can rest. That's the second point. Lastly, it's because God is a faithful God. You see, David promised, he made all these promises, and God says no. Sometimes God's going to shut doors when we pray. And in this case, God sends uh, Nathan to uh, Nathan the prophet to explain uh, that God himself is making a counter-promise. David made these comp- promises. God said no. But instead, he makes these counter-promises. And this is what he says. I will build you a house. Now, for David, the house was a literal building. But for God, to say that I will build you a house, that meant I'm going to build a line through you, a dynasty through you. And what he says is this. I promise to make your descendants a dynastic kingship. And I'm going to do it graciously. I will do it unconditionally. I will commit myself to my people, to you and your line, regardless of your merit, regardless of your pedigree. Neither death nor sin nor time will break this commitment. That's verses 12 to 13. Following that, verses 14 to 15, he says, many of our descendants, many of your descendants, they're going to be sinful. They're going to fail. But that will not stop my love nor commitment to you, not even death. That's covenantal love. That's covenantal language, covenantal love. Verse 16, he goes on, he says, and your house, this kingdom, shall be made sure forever. And he says it twice. He says it twice as a way of emphatically, not to exaggerate, it's a solemn vow. He says, David, my name is on the line. I will stake my name, my life on the line. I will build this house and this kingdom through you. Now, that's pretty much the entire story of the Bible. To build his kingdom through this line. Our kingdom, this kingdom began as a paradise. And then inside this paradise, man rebelled against the king. And with that, the world fell into decay and, and because of the curse. And that's why we have wars. That's why we have disease and all this family brokenness and, and death. It's why we have natural disasters and, and why there's racism in the world and conflict and discontent. What's going to heal it? What's going to heal all of this? In Psalm chapter 96, 
says that when the Lord rules, when the Lord comes, when he returns, the trees will sing and dance. That's what it says. The trees will sing and dance. What does that mean? When the king returns, the curse is going to be broken. And it's this kingship that's going to make you everything, everything you were designed to be, everything you were meant to be. It's the coming king. If you're under that kingship, even the trees, see the trees, they stand tall, even they will sing and dance. Now, if that's what the trees are going to do, then what will you and I do? If trees that we see today are a mere shadow of what they will become, then so will you. So will I. So this baby that was born in the manger is not just a savior. He was born in the line of David. And Christmas is about the coming king who will rule forever and make you everything that you were meant to be, make you everything you were designed to be. Now, how does that happen? In John chapter 1, the author of John chapter 1 writes that the word, the eternal, the eternal word that was there since the beginning became flesh and made his dwelling among us. In other words, Jesus came into the world and he said, I'm not going to live in a house. I'm the king, but I will not live in a house. I will dwell with my people. If my people suffer, then I will suffer. If my people suffer, I will suffer for them. The God who promises, he literally became homeless. In Matthew, he says, foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to rest his head. Jesus is the empathic king who came down in weakness, suffered on the cross for his people, became the curse, fell into defeat, and rose triumphant so that the curse will be broken and lifted forever. Now, he literally overcame sin, paid the debt that the human race owed to the justice of God, became the curse. He's the gracious king. We didn't earn it. He's the gracious king. Christmas is about Jesus who transcended time. The baby, the Son of God became a baby, will reign forever. He transcends time. And so, this empathic king, he said, if my people suffer, I will suffer. I will suffer in their place. He's the gracious king. He said, I will live the life that they should live. I will die the death that they should die. And yet he's so eternal. Even after death, will rise again. He's so eternal. So that's his power. That's his love. That's his grace. That's what the birth of Christ means. Now, if we believe that he's triumphed over death, triumphed over sin, triumphed over even time forever, there's going to be some practical implications because that means Jesus has become our king. If Jesus is your king, and he's so much more than just a king, but if he is your king, here's some applications. One, If Jesus is the empathic and gracious and eternal king, then he is our rebuilding king. You see, if he's just simply a savior, then salvation and Christianity are just personal, individual things. Why do we come to church? Why do we worship as a body together? If Christianity is just an individual thing, then that means that we're just forgiven and our souls will just escape this material world into heaven when the time comes someday. But if Jesus Christ is Savior and King, then this future, eternal, heavenly kingdom will come down with the returning King into the material world. 
and it would subsume all the brokenness of the world. It will consume it, subsume it, and renew it. That's what it will do. And that means that the security and prosperity, it's greater than individual. It's going to be a corporate experience. We need to serve our communities. We need to engage in community, serve communities, care for the poor. How do you do this? One, you've got to work with integrity. You've got to bring the justice and the care and the concern and the compassion, true kingliness. You've got to bring that into your work. You've got to work with integrity. But at the same time, Jesus came and the coming of the king means it's more than just that. It means to bring the peace of God, the prosperity of God, the justice of God into the weak, to the weak that are around us. As we enter into a new era of church, we're going to be serving the East Falls community. We're partnering with the East Falls Development Corporation. We've partnered with the elementary school here, the Thomas Mifflin School. There's a lot going on here just in this very place, in this community. Plug into your community. Love your community. Embrace the city. There's nothing like what God does through the city to impact the world. Second thing, it means that he's a giving king. If you trust that he's the empathic and gracious and eternal king, he's a rebuilding king, he's also a giving king. The whole Christmas narrative revolves around what? He who is rich, yet for our sakes became poor. And what that means is it gives us a whole new view of our wealth and what we do with it. Jesus, he chose to enter through a manger, as a baby, in weakness, through a manger. His name is Emmanuel, God with us. That means he dwells with us. So true Christmas spirit, the true giving of the gift, if you receive the gift of Christ, if you receive the salvation and the blessing of being in Christ, then it's about living lives on the principle that he became poor so that I could become rich, then I can empty myself and become poor so that others who are in need become rich. You know what that means? We've got to give of our time. We've got to give of our talents, give of our trouble, give of our actual wealth, our tangible monetary wealth, give of our care and our concern, our prayers for those who are in need. You say, that's my freedom I'm giving up. Friends, when you give up certain freedoms, you're going to experience new and greater freedoms that you've never experienced before. Can you do that? Do you have the courage to do that? Thirdly, it means that he is the worthy king. If Jesus is a king, that means that, you know, you do what he says unconditionally. He's a king. When you say, when you come to me and you say, you know, I've tried Christianity, I've tried this church, I've tried the church, and no, it, doesn't, it just doesn't work for me. Almost always that means that Christianity has threatened my non-negotiables in life. It's threatened my happiness when I thought it was supposed to support my happiness, increase my happiness. I would, have avo- I would have obeyed if the church was just going to give me the things that I wanted. That means that you've never truly committed. And that's why, generally, people who come with that are not really joyful in life. You don't see the joy. You're not obeying God as king. You're using God because you're still king. You're still on the throne. You haven't surrendered everything that you love for the one love, for true love. Look at Jesus. He did the impossible for you. He marched through the gates of God's wrath, the fire of God's wrath for you. If he is king, then it means to serve him, even if it's not working out for you, at least not right now. And he's so worthy. 
Jesus is so worthy. He's so good. He's so faithful. Has he not been gracious? Has he not been faithful? Next, it means that he's a trustworthy king. Trust him. David prayed. God shuts doors, but he trusted. Will you trust Jesus on the cross? He's crying out. He's praying. He's reciting psalms. He's praying, crying out in agony. Why? God had forsaken him. Why? So that you could be heard. We can trust him. We can trust his power. We can trust his, his, his character. You can trust him. Trust his word. Read his word. You can pray to him. He's a listening king as well. He's a trustworthy king. He's a listening king. He will fulfill his promise. He will hear. And lastly, he's a joyful king. You know, there's a point to all the suffering that we endure. I mean, if you really believe that he is a gracious king, then the suffering that we endure is not punishment because we've been bad this past year. He's a joyful king. There's a point to our suffering because there was a point to Jesus' suffering. Why did Jesus suffer? Not so that we would never suffer again. It's so that this suffering here would one day be subsumed by the ultimate joy of being in Christ. Hundreds of billions of years from now, hundreds of billions of years of joy from now, will you care about the hundred years of suffering that we endure? You won't. You know why? Not because it didn't matter. It did matter. The joy came through the suffering. Jesus, the king of the earth, the most glorious God of heaven, came and suffered immeasurably, not as a separate thing from his joy, but through that suffering, the joy would come. And in the same way, through our suffering, our hundred-some years of suffering, the ultimate joy will subsume it all. It's the joy through the suffering. Hundreds of billions of years from now, that joy will subsume the joys that we've endured. And it will continue to grow. This kind of joy cannot go away because it's happening through suffering. The suffering can't kill it. It's impenetrable. It's deeper. It's permanent. He's the eternal king. It's forever. That's what Christmas is about. This is what we celebrate. The greater David, the greater king, who has come and is returning. We anticipate his coming. Will you let him be your joy? Will you let him be your joy? You know, this week is filled with gift-giving, filled with family, but, you know, when we look around, everything is broken. We all know that. For some people, it actually brings anxiety, and other people, it actually brings sadness. Will you let the gospel of redeeming joy come and subsume even that now so that your true celebration of Christmas is more than just a worship service, that as you observe it, Will you let it subsume your sorrows so that it will birth you into joy as you really observe it and celebrate it with family and friends and loved ones around you? That's the meaning of our giving because we've received so much. Will you remember that this week? Let's pray.